confused sometimes. All right, there it is. So it is the third week in Advent, and um, you can see that we have the third candle on our Advent wreath, the pink one, lit. There are three purple ones and one pink one, and the pink one is the one of joy. In the third week of Advent, we celebrate joy, and we think upon joy. It is called the shepherd's candle, and the shepherd's section of the Christmas story is very much about joy. The shepherds are mentioned in Luke chapter 2, verse 8 to 20. And in this scripture passage, they were watching sheep in their pastures in that eventful night when an angel appeared to them. Of course, when an angelic being appears upon you, what other reaction but abject fear are you expected to have? An emissary of God A creature that looks unfathomable beyond our wildest imaginations. An angel appears and they were afraid. So the angel says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And the next moment, a whole group of angels appeared around the first one, praised God, and then disappeared. The shepherds immediately entered into Bethlehem and found Joseph and Mary with their baby. Praise God, there are so many babies amongst us today, cooing, making noises, I know the parents have a hard time paying attention with all the cooing. I have learned through the years to have a rock hard will and just ignore all that. There could be 20,000 coups and I will continue to preach with focus. It is a hard skill, but a learned skill. And so after meeting the Messiah, the shepherds told others what they had seen. And then they returned to the manger. Quote, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. The shepherds serve as witnesses to Jesus' birth. They received a message of joy from the angels and passed that on to the other people after seeing Jesus. They even returned to see Jesus again and praise God. In other words, their response to Jesus' birth was very joy-filled. Today, we will witness the rebirth of our brother Dan. And with the angels in heaven, we will experience great joy at the sight of another lost soul found by the shepherd of of our souls, the Son of God, who came to us in the flesh of a little baby. As we prepare ourselves to witness Dan's rebirth, Dan's cleansing, Dan's washing away of sin, we must consider first, what manner of life baptism is calling Dan and us to? And secondly, how that manner of life ensures that joy will continue in the church? What manner of life baptism calls us to? And how that manner of life ensures that joy continue in the church. 
So let us start by considering what manner of life baptism calls us to. In baptism, we are born anew and set on a track of a new adulthood. We are made to start again as children, for we have grown rotten. Our manhood is deplorable, and so we need a fresh start to then mature into the fullness of man. We are not made newborns that we may stay as newborns. We are made newborns that we may grow into the fullness of Christian adulthood. Baptism is a fresh start and a new freedom, enabling us to become fully man. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We heard from Corinthians in our first reading, so we will dance around a few other sections of Corinthians. In chapter 3, we heard from chapter 4, I believe, today. But in chapter 3, we learn about what Paul is doing in writing, some of the feelings, some of the context that St. Paul is experiencing as he wrote to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 is about the failure, tells us that the congregation at Corinth failed to grow up from their baptism. Quote, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. End quote. He clearly is frustrated that they, upon receiving baptism, becoming babes in Christ, have not grown into the fullness of manhood, have stayed as children. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 gives us further insight into this context. Paul says, quote, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. End quote. St. Paul has an aspiration for his people to grow into maturity. Indeed, not only in Corinthians, but elsewhere, St. Paul tells us this. Ephesians chapter 4, quote, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Hebrews 5, quote, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. As my eldest recently has been reading the story of Peter Pan. Everyone knows that. That's ubiquitous, right? Everyone knows the story of Peter Pan. It reminded me of this dilemma that St. Paul was going through with Corinth. Peter Pan, the boy who never grew up. He came to visit Wendy and her brothers. They went to Neverland and had wonderful adventures, exciting times. Peter Pan was having so much fun that, given the opportunity to grow up, he refused. He refused to grow up. That is the vibe. That is the ethos of Peter Pan. And our culture has become 
a Peter Pan generation. The generation that idolizes youth and idolizes the absolute refusal to grow up. This generation relies on the bank of mom and dad far longer than previous generations. Marries much later. Enters the workforce much later. Has children much later. Plays video games for much longer. Basically shirks responsibility for much longer time. And churches have walked alongside this degeneration of the expectations we have for children. It used to be that when boys turned 16, they were considered fully men, able to handle a rifle, a weapon, to go out into the field and work for his food. Today, we would be shocked to find a 16-year-old working in the shops. I have never seen one, certainly. Our churches, like I said, have continued following suit. They're less, they preach less and less the high duties and responsibilities of growing into the full manhood of Christ. The Bible calls boys, that the Bible calls boys to become men and fearlessly take on the responsibility of family is plain and evident to become providers, to become protectors, and to exercise a priestly ministry in their homes, to bring the word of God into the life of their wife, of their child, to bring bacon onto the table, to protect from the dangerous forces that are out there, not just physical, but spiritual. For we are inundated with poisonous depravity, on our TVs, on our radios, on our cell phones. The father, the man. He's called from boyhood to become that priest, protector, and provider. And nothing is more evident in the church today than the stubbornly ungovernable women, little girls, that grow up and become stubborn, ungovernable young ladies. And the stubborn effeminacy and immaturity of her young men. Talk to any young woman in the church most and they'll say, where are the men in the churches? It's like walking into a lingerie store. A lingerie department is saying, where are the men? Of course, they're not going to be in the lingerie department. But that's what the church has come to feel like. And it is because we no longer teach the full counsel of God, the high expectations of the promises we make at baptism, that the church has become a fet. The women ungovernable, the men suppliant, submissive, effeminate. Today's readings are a prime example. What are churches in the West teaching when these readings appear in the rhythm of readings, in the lectionary? In the midst of a congregation that is basically attempting to depose St. Paul, depose him as their bishop, as their leader, and replace him with Apollos or someone else, he finds a congregation that is caught up in strife, in sin. They accepted 
Who remembers the big problem in Corinth? They accepted a family where, believe it or not, a son was in relations with his stepmother. And the church embraced it, welcomed it, loved it. And so in that situation of strife and sin, what does St. Paul do? Chapter 5 in Corinthians, this is what he does. Chapter 5, poor lad. Chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians says this, verse 1 to 15. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named amongst the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. What does he tell them? You ever gotten upset when someone rebukes you and says you're doing wrong? And then you say, how dare he? He judged me. Well, can you imagine being rebuked in an epistle that will be read by generations and generations and generations and generations for all time? Can you imagine not just someone personally saying you're done wrong, you need to fix that. Not someone in a pulpit correcting you in front of the brothers and sisters. But someone correcting you in the eyes of the whole world that will be read over and over and over again. This is the guts and the backbone of St. Paul when he says, chapter 4, verse 19, he says, But I will come to you shortly if the Lord will, and will know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? In other words, Paul, the protector, the provider, the priest does his duty, does what is necessary of a good steward of the mysteries of God. He corrects, he rebukes. So when he says in our reading that a steward must be faithful, as we read here, let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. When we heard that today, the calling is a calling to be accountable to God. He is saying to the Corinthians, I don't answer to you. My sheep, I answer to God. He is saying, in the end, I will answer to the boss, not to you. So whether you like what I've said or not, whether you appreciate you, me calling you out, calling your sin out publicly for all eternity, not only from the pulpit, but from an epistle that will be read to all eternity, it doesn't bother me. I answer to him. My duty is to God, and in carrying it out, I am willing to pay the price of your hurt feelings and your rejection of me. This is the biblical integrity of a man discharged with the duties of passing on the mysteries of God. There is to be a muscular indifference to the sheep when it comes to teaching the truth and administering the sacraments. Such responsible stewardship would, surprise, surprise, 
be the God-ordained way that ensures a generation of mature teachers and leaders are prepared to take the baton, baton, moving forward to receive the truth from one man to another. As St. Paul tells Timothy, we affirm that the house of God is the pillar of all truth. I know that all of us have a high view of the scriptures, but do we have a high view of the church? When the scriptures call the church the pillar of truth, listen to this, quote, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come into thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou may knowest, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest, and here he delivers the essential truth of the gospel. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And so the pink candle of joy, that pink candle, the shepherd's candle, points us to the life of a good shepherd and how his under-shepherds are to live a new life having received baptism. Men like John the Baptist, what do, teach, what do churches teach about him when they, this particular reading comes up? Let us remind ourselves. Now, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. And said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jump down to subsequent verses. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out to see? A man clothed in delicate clothing? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Beloved, what is being talked about here? He's talking about eunuchs. Them who have had their junk cut off. Them who have been castrated and live in king's houses amongst the harem and who are no threat to the women who live in the palaces. If you're a king and you have many women, you're not going to like having guards who are strong and martial, powerful men walking around the palace because they could, hey, I like that one. I'll have that one and I'm going to go out of the palace and I'm going to have that one. No, you want men who have no testosterone flowing through them because they've had literally their genitals taken off. They are eunuchs. Their voices then are high. They are soft, effeminate. And so Jesus is asking, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A man clothed in soft raiment? Jesus, who we think is gentle, he is. Soft, he is. Caring, he is. But this is also the, the Jesus who flips tables and says hard things. And he said, have you come to see an effeminate eunuch man who has had his junk cut off? No. 
This is John the Baptist who lived in the wilderness off of wild honey, who came ragged looking like a wild man, who survived. When the divinity of Christ, when his propitiation of our sins, when the opportunity for a new life in him is challenged and mocked by a secular age, foisting all kinds of poisonous ideology upon us, who would you have to face it? A wild man like John the Baptist or a eunuch who lives in the palace and will do whatever the palace master says? How will the truth that we heard Paul say, the son who took on flesh, was crucified, buried, and rose again, who will defend that truth? And that truth is the source of joy. But if we don't have defenders of that truth, we will not have joy. For the truth will be suppressed. How will the source of joy, God's truth, survive in our day? St. Paul, John the Baptist, Jesus the Messiah. We are full of joy that the Christ child is soon to arrive. That he grew into great stature. That he was a powerful steward of the calling God gave him. To give his life over to brutal scourging and crucifixion. You see, beloved, he set up a paradigm. That the tree of joy is watered by the blood of the saints. The tree of joy is watered by the blood of the saints. In calling our brother Dan to baptism, God is calling him and reminding us that joy in the church comes and is paid with a price. Firstly, the price of Christ's own blood. Without the price paid by the blood of the Lord Jesus, there is no joy, there is no reconciliation, there is no eternal life. Secondly, it is paid by the price of the saints living out their baptismal vows to the death. As Dan receives baptism, as he is exorcised and washed of his sin, let us pray that his new birth will start a journey which ends in the type of faithfulness St. Paul calls us all to. The same journey that St. John and Christ the Messiah exemplified. So that his family and the family of God may benefit And have joy, the joy of the preservation of the truth by men who are willing to lay it all down, who will ignore the opinion and the mockery and the skepticism and the cynicism, who will not shape the church in the image of those voices but will rather shape their families and the church in the image of God's own Son. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.